Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have something pretty different today. Uh, We are going to talk to one of the preeminent Civil War historians, American Civil War historians of the last 30 or 40 years. His name is James McPherson. Uh, I believe he's an emeritus professor now at Princeton University. But again, if you go back to the late 20th century and the early 21st century, one of the preeminent historians of that period of American history. Now, this is not, as, as you know, this is not generally a Civil War history podcast, but the reason that I wanted to talk with McPherson is that many people, and you've probably heard of this yourself, talk about the way that the 1850s, the decade before the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War in 1861, has some discomforting, challenging parallels with our own time. You have a a period of extreme political polarization, um, some some creeping of violence into the political sphere, and in a broader sense, a failure of governmental institutions to absorb and sort of litigate the disagreements that are inherent at any political moment. So I wanted to talk with McPherson about what what were the 1850s like? What were the basic dynamics? And at least implicitly, is that period similar to ours? And I guess in the background, a more a more frightening question: Do we have a a, a civil war coming in? Um, in the American future. So that's what I wanted to speak with McPherson about, and we are going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, before then, uh, talk briefly about the news of this week. Obviously, we have uh, uh, former President George H.W. Bush passed away, I guess, is it Saturday night, David? Late Friday night. Okay, late Friday night, and uh, was lived a very long life, was yeah. 94 years old. Um, I noticed that you had, you would post it on Twitter something about how many of the recent U.S. presidents have lived these extraordinarily long lives. It's very interesting that you have to go back to Richard Nixon, who died in, I believe, 1994, 1995, you know, in the early 90s, to find a president who died before he was 93 years of age, which is which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, Carter is 93 or so. I think Carter's 94. He's not. He's 93 or 94. Uh, Gerald Ford, I believe, was 93 when he died. And I think Ronald Reagan was maybe also 93. Uh, But these are, you know, people live longer and longer. But these are are very long lifespans. Um, So we're, uh, I guess, and he's going to be, is he buried on on Wednesday? I think the official sort of like state funeral is tomorrow. And then I think he heads back to Houston uh, and his presidential library to be buried on the grounds next to his wife. And then his... Late daughter who died really young, I think, right? Like three of yeah. leukemia. Uh, right. Or a, any, anybody who's a parent shudders when they hear these yeah. kind of stories. So this obviously was was maybe as long as 70 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so she's going to be also interred She's with buried them. there as well. Oh, she already yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. So that, a lot of, a lot of, there's sort of saturation coverage of that now, and there's a lot of retrospect you know there's some of it is definitely uh nostalgia yeah um uh taking stock of of the president's political career there is inevitably a lot of implicit and often explicit comparisons to the current president um and i think you have to admit there's also some pretty substantial whitewashing of um of of the president's not just time as president, yeah. but but you know when he was vice. president. I saw someone resurface a tweet he sent about uh, Roger Ailes recently, just something about he was a you know a great friend. I don't think oh. I'd be president if it oh. weren't for him. Something that didn't. Well, he's probably, he might be true, right. but not you know something that didn't seem to age super well. Yeah, in, well, in hindsight. you know, there's a lot of stuff like like the Willie Horton ad. Right. 
Bush was a big advocate of the war on drugs, what we now call mass incarceration. Uh, obviously, there are lots of elements of his foreign policy that are history's verdict is is, is definitely not in. The yeah. one thing, and I, I wrote a I wrote a post about this. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Um, the one thing I think, it, I, I think this will be his his key positive legacy is that it's very hard for us in retrospect to think how many things could have gone wrong in the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, which were obviously, you know, basically the same event. And, you know, to a great extent, we're saying nothing went terribly wrong. It is easy to understate that accomplishment. And I do think it's always it's always worth uh, when when someone passes away to uh, find to find the most positive parts of their legacy and make sure they get mentioned, uh, even while not ignoring the more negative uh, parts of his legacy. Uh, this is one thing with with President Trump. Anybody looks good in comparison because, <laughs> you know, he 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 is um, such a graceless, selfish, predatory person. Um, just some of the ordinary kind of blocking and tackling of being a relatively decent person <laughs> right. looks pretty good yeah. in, uh, uh, by comparison. So we have that. We also have, now we are recording this uh, mid-afternoon. This hasn't happened today, but a sentencing memorandum is coming out on Mike Flynn, right. which people are expecting to get a lot of you know those morsels right. it was almost a, It was about. almost exactly a year ago that he pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. I think, I think it was maybe December 1st or something like that. Right, so pretty so, close. Yeah. So, so it's going to be probably another big week in the Russia story coming after one of the, you know, one of the most substantial, significant weeks so far. Right. And so, then, so it's two more of these on Friday, uh, Manafort right. and Michael Cohen's right. sentencing memorandums. Yep. And then you were saying we have uh, James Comey is going right. to testify yep. in secret. But then, right. the, then <laughs> exactly. The, yeah. He, they sort of worked out a deal. He was um, he can subpoenaed them. to testify before the House committee, I want to say, right? Right. One of the House committees. And um, didn't want to do that because he thought his words would probably be twisted and you know, used well, against selective him. Selective leaks yeah, exactly. and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, through his lawyer, it seems like he worked out a deal where he'll testify. It will be a private, like a closed hearing, but he'll be able to speak freely about it afterwards. And then this transcript will be- Like within 24 hours yeah. or something like that. All right. So, so a lot of stuff coming up here this week. And so before we get to our interview, let me remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you love cold brew ice coffee, you know how expensive your habit can be. We're talking four to five bucks a cup at your local coffee shop. That's over $100 a month, and that's just the money. Now add up all the time you've spent waiting in line at the coffee shop. It's not exactly convenient. Luckily, there's a better way. Order Grady's Cold Brew online and have it delivered straight to your home or office door. You can pour a glass of Grady's famous cold brew straight from the fridge for less than a buck a cup, saving you over $1,000 a year. And shipping is always free. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Okay, so uh, we, we, we just went over what we are looking at for the rest of the week on the Russia probe. Now we're going to shift gears and look back at this period, the 1850s, the lead up to the Civil War, a period of great polarization of failure of institutions to contain and absorb public disagreements and controversies and ask how different or similar that period was to the period that we are living in today. So let's talk to Professor James McPherson. Okay, uh, Professor McPherson, Jim, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I, I've, I've wanted to discuss this with you for some time. We're talking about the 1850s, which obviously is the decade before the beginning of the U.S. Civil War. It's a period of great polarization, in, in political polarization in the, in the United States, some people, I think, rightly compare it to uh, the our current moment in, in U.S. history, although many of the d- dynamics are different. How should we see the 1850s? What is the, what is the overview of that p- 
period in American history in the lead-up to the Civil War? Well, for one thing, the economy was very prosperous and was growing very fast. And in that respect, it's somewhat similar to today. But there was a kind of malaise in the social and political structure of the country, growing out of the, partly growing out of territorial and economic expansion, but mainly growing out of the question of, of slavery and the extension, expansion of slavery with all of the new territory acquired from Mexico in the Mexican War, which had ended in 1848. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the political structure of the country was undergoing a major change. Historians call it a change from the second party system, which had prevailed since the um, late 1820s, to what they call the third party system. The second party system had been characterized by two major parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, and both of those parties had strength in all parts of the country. Uh, both the northern free states and the southern slave states, uh, and although the Democrats were slightly stronger in the uh, western slave states, uh, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, nevertheless there were strong Whig parties in those states as well, and sometimes the Whigs carried those states. But uh, in, in 1846 to 1848, in the debate over whether slavery should be excluded from any territories acquired from Mexico, the so-called Wilmot Proviso, which was passed by the House several times in the late 1840s, but always um, stifled in the Senate, where the southern states were um, stronger. There were an equal number of slave and free states, and so since every state has two senators, uh, there were as many senators from the slave states as there were from the free states, and they were able to stop the Wilmot Proviso from being passed by the Senate. Uh, and then with the Compromise of 1850, uh, that issue was supposedly settled by what came to be called popular sovereignty, that is, leave it up to the territories themselves to decide whether or not they want slavery. The people who pushed through that compromise, which was really a bipartisan compromise, um, conservative um, northern Democrats and Whigs and uh, moderate southern uh, Whigs and Democrats supported it, while the stronger free soil anti-slavery people in the north and the most aggressive pro-slavery people in the south opposed it uh, because it was a compromise that yielded some other features um, to the free states, so the, the more extremist Southerners supported, uh, opposed it. Is it fair to say that when you when you say before that the Democrats and the Whigs both had, uh, if not perfectly equal, real support in 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 each of the sections of the country, that that was not that didn't just come about by accident. That in the early nineteenth century there was sort of a, a broad understanding in the U.S. political class that it would be very bad if the party system ever aligned with the basic north-south sectional potential division in the country. T tell us about—well, first of all, I guess my question is, 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 is what I'm saying accurate? And how much did that play into a sort of— you know, uh, beyond partisanship strategy in the U.S. political class to, again, prevent party alignment from aligning with sexual, sectional alignment. Yeah, you're quite correct about that. And the party leaders of both the Democratic and Whig parties that emerged in the late 1820s and early 1830s consciously uh, tried to keep the slavery issue, which they knew was a was a divisive, extremely divisive issue, uh, out of uh, party politics, out of national politics, they had seen what almost happened in the debate in 1820 over the Missouri Compromise, where initially northern and southern um, uh, politicians lined up against each other, and um, 
that that scared a lot of people. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was still around, uh, called it the fire bell in the night. Um, and uh, so party leaders consciously uh, tried to keep uh, slavery out of uh, national politics in the 1830s and 40s. Uh, Henry Clay, uh, the Whig leader, um, was from Kentucky and a slaveholder himself. Um, and Jackson, of course, the Democratic leader, was from uh, Tennessee and uh, a slaveholder himself. So here you had the two major party leaders in the 1830s and into the 1840s as slaveholders, and they uh, and as well as the other party leaders, including those like Martin Van Buren, who was the Democratic uh, president from in the late 1840s and the leader of the party for a decade, even though he was from New York, he was a, a, a consciously at that time uh, tried to uh, suppress the divisiveness of the slavery issue. So you you really had a, um, a, a party leadership that recognized the, uh, the the danger posed to national unity by the slavery issue, uh, managing the politics uh, of the of the country in, in the, uh, this crucial period of the 1830s and 40s, but that <clears throat> that began to break down with the uh, issue, the Wilmot Proviso issue, over the expansion of slavery into the territory acquired from Mexico. And it broke down further in 1854. Uh, well, it broke down. It began to break down even further earlier over the fugitive slave issue, which was part of the Compromise of 1850, a, a kind of draconian new fugitive slave law um, to help the South recover uh, slaves that escaped to the free states. But even more of a problem was uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1864. Um, what that did was repeal the provision of the Missouri Compromise back in 1820 that permitted slavery below a certain um, um, latitude, 3630, and prohibited it in territories above that latitude. Uh, that had been a compromise which, uh, while it was not liked by the strongest uh, anti-slavery and pro-slavery people at the time, nevertheless, uh, became in, entrenched in in um, uh, the national political culture, but it broke down in 1854 uh, over the question of whether uh, slavery should now be allowed to expand into Kansas. Um, and Stephen Douglas, who was the leader of the Democratic Party, um, pushed through Congress a provision applying the um, the uh, uh, popular sovereignty issue to Kansas and Nebraska, two new territories admitted by, uh, to, created by that legislation. And uh, that, that set off a, a, a national um, uh, revolt, really, uh, you might call it in today's terms, resistance, um, which led to the expansion of what had been the Free Soil Party, which was organized in 1848 to uh, resist um, the expansion of slavery into the territories acquired from Mexico, uh, it now morphed into the Republican Party, a much larger party, which was organized on the basis of resisting the uh, expansion of slavery into Kansas and opposing uh, the the Kansas Nebraska Act and opposing popular sovereignty and just and popular sovereignty basically means we're going to organize a territory and we're going to leave it to the democratic process within that territory to decide whether they want to have slavery or not. That's right. Okay. Uh, previously, the 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 governing assumption was that uh, this was a, a legislation. This was on uh, based on legislation passed by Congress in 1820. Um, prohibiting slavery in certain territories and allowing it in other territories. And now the idea was that the territorial settlers could decide it for themselves. Uh, and then when they came, when they were finally admitted as a state, they could come into the Union with slavery or without slavery as they chose, uh, as California had done back in 1850. 
uh, when it it passed the territorial stage, it never went through the stage of the territory because its population grew so quickly as a consequence of the discovery of gold and the gold rush, the 49ers, uh, that they completely bypassed the territorial stage, organized a state constitutional convention in 1849, and petitioned for admission uh, as a state in 1850 uh, without slavery, because their state constitution banned slavery. Um, that was what set off the whole um, series of issues that were supposedly resolved by the Compromise of 1850, uh, but then it was that whole issue was reopened again uh, with the question of uh, Kansas and the ter- Kansas and Nebraska, but especially Kansas, uh, because Missouri slaveholders and slaveholders from some other states uh, were determined to make Kansas a free state, uh, sorry, a slave state, uh, and uh, the Northerners, uh, settlers, and uh, something called the New England Immigrant Aid Society were determined to make it a free territory. And the two clashed in what became a kind of mini-civil war uh, in 1854 to 1856 in Kansas between the pro-slavery and anti-slavery settlers uh, that uh, fueled the uh, rise of the Republican Party and the complete breakdown of the the so-called second-party system. Um, The uh, Whigs more or less disappeared in both North and South. In the South, they disappeared because they were considered not to be pro-slavery enough, uh, and in the North, they were uh, suppressed by the Republicans because many Northern voters considered them not anti-slavery enough. So you had the polarization of the country first over what was actually going on in Kansas, and second over the um, broader national issue of whether Congress could prohibit slavery, or whether uh, they could not, whether it should be left to the voters of the territory. So it it sounds like popular sovereignty basically created. I mean, there's a whole separate question about whether a question about something like slavery should be up to a vote, but in, in a in a broader context. Popular sovereignty, democratic process is a is is a very valued uh, is is a big value in American politics. But by doing it in this case, it created these very volatile incentives to get as many people on your side into these states as possible. And then once that, you know, violence, but it's creating a very volatile an unstable situation where at least prior to that, when it's Congress making the rules, you at least have a little more kind of top-down control. Is that is that broadly accurate? Yes, I think so. Exactly. Th- then you then you had uh, the presidential election coming along in 1856, in which, um, unlike uh, all of the previous presidential, nearly all of the previous presidential elections, you've got. Um, Virtually uh, all of the states, uh, all of the slave states, um, voting on one side, either for the Democratic Party or for what was called the American Party, which is another issue that was uh, divisive in the, 1840, in the 1850s, the issue of immigration. Uh, they were for um, not so much immigration restriction as denying political rights to, to immigrants. But uh, and for a while it looked like they might emerge as the replacement for the Whig Party. Uh, but in the North, the slavery issue uh, turned out to be more uh, important in the eyes of voters than the immigration issue, and so it was the Republican Party and not the American Party that emerged as the principal Northern Party in 1856. So you've got uh, most of the Northern states. Uh, voting Republican in 56, and virtually all of, all of the southern states voting uh, either Democratic, most of them Democratic, and a few of them, the upper south, the less pro-slavery, but still pro-slavery, the less extreme, upper south states voting uh, for, the, for the American Party, which was a kind of remnant of the old Whigs in the south. Uh, but for the most part, it was a geographical polarization, and the only thing that prevented secession in 1856, rather than four years later, was that just enough 
northern states uh, voted for the Democratic candidate, James Buchanan, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and uh, New Jersey, and Indiana, uh, to prevent the Republicans from carrying every state in the north and therefore carrying the election. But the handwriting was on the wall after 1856 because if the Republicans could uh, carry just uh, two of those states, uh, they they would win the election if they if the if the patterns of voting uh, followed what had happened in 1856. And so you've got four years of um, uh, political polarization between 1856 and 1860 that. Um, uh, uh, raised all kinds of fears for the survival of, of the nation. Uh, if the Republicans carried just a couple of those states, and as it turned out, they carried three of them and half of New Jersey, uh, three and a half, um, and and won the election in 1860, which was um, it was a, it was a perfect geographical um, polarization between what we would today call uh, blue states and red states, except that the parties have flipped. That is, the northern states then were Republican, and the southern states were Democrat. Um, and uh, uh, and that kind of political polarization uh, is what led the southern states to secede, because they feared that they had... They, that basically, the... the Victory by the Republicans in 1860 convinced a majority of Southerners, not all of them, but a majority of Southerners, that they had no future in the United States. That slavery uh, was the, the, the slavery's days were now numbered. Uh, the Republicans would not be able to abolish it right away, but they would be able to restrict its expansion, harass it in, in all kinds of ways. The, the, the Southern states feared. Uh, that maybe they would abolish slavery in the District of Columbia. They would uh, they would prohibit the interstate slave trade. All kinds of fears of what they would do. That they would um, the northern states would strengthen their so-called personal liberty laws, which made it difficult, if not impossible, for uh, slave owners to recover slaves from the north that had escaped uh, from southern states. Uh, so they they decided to secede, seven of them first, and then four more after the shooting started at Fort Sumter. Now, let me ask you this. One of the things that has always struck me about um, the decades before the U.S. Civil War is, from one perspective, uh, despite it being uh, economically, population, a smaller, you know, the, uh, a, the smaller section, the South, in many ways the South dominated the federal government for decades. You're absolutely right. And the way they had managed to dominate it was by dominating, partly it's because they were able to, the three-fifths compromise that goes all the way back to the Constitution, uh, which um, meant that Southern whites, Southern voters, uh, free uh, Southern whites, um, had had a much stronger voting power than their share of the population, uh, and then of course the the uh, the constitutional requirement that every state have two senators. So these two factors enabled the South, with its lesser population, nevertheless to dominate national politics. And because by the late 1840s and and the 1850s. Uh, the South also dominated the Democratic Party. Um, they were able to leverage that domination into into national um, uh, control uh, because they 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 outnumbered the Northern Democrats, especially after 1854. Um, so because the Democratic Party won the the two principal national elections in the 1850s, 1852 and 1856, and the South had come to dominate the Democratic Party by 1854. They were able to leverage that control, even though they had a lesser population, into control of national politics. But that came to an end, of course, with Lincoln's election in 1860, and that was part of the writing on the wall that um, uh, that Southerners... Uh, uh, used to um, um, 
to convince their population that they had no future within the Union of the United States and that they should set up for themselves if they wanted to defend slavery, which was not just uh, an institution whereby whites owned slaves as uh, chattel property, but it was the basis of uh, Southern society, Southern culture, uh, Southern political uh, potency, uh, the Three-Fifths Compromise, for example, uh, and the, the and white supremacy, basically. So it was not just an economic institution. It was uh, um, it was social, cultural, and political as well. Uh, and and the victory of Lincoln and the anti-slavery Northern Republicans in 1860 uh, convinced a majority of, of Southern whites. And especially in the Deep South, where slavery was um, was absolutely central to the entire social and economic structure of the region, uh, that they had no future in the United States and should leave. And that's what brought on secession, and secession brought on the war. Now, let me ask you this, and this is this is some this is an, an area where I, I I do feel there are some parallels. It's always been my sense of the late antebellum period that the South, one of the reasons the South uh, dominates the federal government is, as you say, there's sort of structural reasons with, you know, uh, uh, greater voting power for, for white voters, the Senate, and so forth. But it's always struck me that one of the reasons that the South dominated the federal government is that it was perceived by Southerners as being much more important than it was in general to Northerners. And and the reason there being that the South had a great perception of its weakness and weakness that seemed to be getting getting greater over time and that that bred a, an aggressiveness in, in, in federal politics. Um, and it's, it's that combination of people who politically, institutionally feel threatened, feel that the, th- the threats they face are getting greater over time, get very aggressive. Um, is, is, does that, does that w- w- with your knowledge of this period, is, does that seem broadly true, that that's one of the factors here? Well, yes, it is, although it's, more, it's complicated by the fact that... Um it created what you might call a defensive, aggressive posture in the South. That's absolutely true. Uh, the North was um, growing faster in population. Uh, the Northern e- economy uh, dominated in many respects. Uh, the industrial and the commercial economy of the North dominated the national economy in many respects. Most of the manufacturing, most of the commerce, most of the shipping. Uh, most of the railroads uh, were in the north, um, and uh, the South felt that it was a kind of exploited colonial uh, economy uh, for that reason, and that created a kind of defensiveness and aggressiveness uh, to respond to that defensiveness. But at the same time that the South had this, in in some respects, this kind of gnawing inferiority complex, if you can, if you want to call it that. At the same time, there was the so-called King Cotton uh, uh, psychology in the South. Uh, the South produced three quarters of the world's cotton, and the cotton was really the oil of the 19th century economy. Uh, it dominated international trade. Uh, southern exports of cotton and also some uh, tobacco uh, constituted something like three-fifths of American exports in international trade in the 1850s. And so this this also created the sense that um, uh, the South could go it alone, uh, that it's cotton because it dominated, it, it provided a, a commodity, a, an important commodity in the world economy, uh, could go it alone, uh, and, and um, uh, that 
no nation, as one as one Southerner, James Hammond, a South Carolina senator, put it in his famous King Cotton speech in 1858. Uh, no power in the world dares to make war uh, war on the South because we King Cotton dominates the world economy. So you've got you've got this defensiveness on the one hand uh, that um, grew in part out of a sense that. Uh, the, the the North was uh, striding forward in seven-league boots, and the South was not. But at the same time, the, the, there was this countervailing uh, um, uh, psychology uh, that the South uh, could do, could stand alone because of because of its uh, domination of an important co- commodity in in uh, international trade and in the world's economy. And that was a, a kind of lethal combination uh, because it convinced Southerners uh, that after they had lost control of the national government in the election of 1860, and that the North would now use its greater population and and, uh, its economic control to to squeeze uh, slavery. At the same time, Southerners believed that they could go it alone uh, because of of this King Cotton psychology. And that was kind of a, a, as I call it, a lethal combination that fueled the drive for secession. Well, it seems like there's, it's definitely the case that you, and, and one can see this in different, you know, periods in history and in human interactions that you, that it sounds like what you're talking about is that, that combination of perception of threat, of vulnerability and aggression, they kind of feed off each other. And as you yes, say, it's absolutely. a very lethal combination. Yep, that's an, that's what happened. So you have the, the 1856 election, which shows that the what's what is emerging as the third party system is aligning really closely with the north south free versus slave sectional division. It doesn't quite line up and that allows the Democratic Party James Buchanan, if I remember, is actually from I think Pennsylvania. Is that am I yes? Right? He was from Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, so Lancaster. North. What is it? They call it northern Northern man with Southern principles, or so. There's a phrase that. Well, they were called doe faces. Right. Yeah, right. Northern men with Southern principles. Yeah, right. Buchanan was the kind of quintessential doe face. Right. So okay. So so the writing is on the wall. They they see the pattern, but the but the South because they they the the Democratic Party wins a, a few northern states it, things aren't kind of brought to a head but so you have this four-year period where the south is making a collective decision we're here unless and until we're no longer in charge basically of of the federal government let's can you tell us about the political culture of that period i mean i know i i believe it's in these four years that Charles Sumner is is caned on the floor of the Senate, and that's always been like a symbol of of just the the that breakdown. Tell us about those four years, the political culture of those four years. Well, it it was a, it was a horribly polarized political culture, and in one in which uh, violence was very near the surface, and the caning of Sumter uh, Sumner which actually happened in May of 1856, so it was before the 1856 election, but it was during the run-up to the election. And it in, it, it coincided with um, John Brown's uh, uh, um, violence in Kansas against pro-slavery settlers. Uh, it also, uh, I mean, the caning of Sumner was uh, one of the most extreme examples of uh, violence on the floor of Congress, but it was not the only one. Um, uh, there were there were duels as a co- as a result of uh, 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 confrontations in Congress uh, in, in the eighteen forties and eighteen fifties. There's a recent book uh, about that. What's the name of that book? If 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 our if our listeners would be interested, it's uh, by a Joanne Freeman, and it's called uh, the word "blood" is part of the title. I'm trying to remember the. Um, well, if they have the if we have the author's name, that should that should be enough. I just wanted to uh, yeah. help people. Yeah, uh, Joanne Google Freeman is. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good book. It, j- it just came out about six months ago, um, and it it uh, it's an eye opener because uh, uh, we tend to think about uh, we we talk about the. Um, 
decline with civility today right. in national politics and in, con- in Congress. Uh, well, what's going on today is a pretty pale uh, imitation of what went on in the 1840s and 50s in terms of violence. I mean, and all kinds of um, uh, congressmen came armed. Uh, and one um, Southerner who was almost, only uh, half joking said that um, uh, the only people uh, who uh, don't carry a pistol onto the floor of Congress are those who carry a pistol and a knife uh, <laughs> onto the floor of Congress. And that was, uh, well, it probably wasn't literally true. It was, uh, you know, it was making a, a, an essentially accurate point. Is that about you know, people start to be violent and then everybody wants to, you know, sort of a a vicious cycle where everybody wants to be, you know, be able to defend themselves or some of that a, you know, kind of symbolic aggression of having fire. What, what, what is, what is that about exactly? Well, it was in part about the culture. You talked to, you asked a moment ago about the political culture of that period. Uh, Part of the political culture was based on an exaggerated sense of honor, uh, which we associate primarily with the South, uh, but existed in uh, among Northerners as well. Honor is your public reputation. What other people think of you? Uh, if you, uh, um, if they have, uh, if if they consider you a coward, that means you can't hold up your 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 um, head in in among your peers. Uh, uh, and so this culture of honor fed into the violence that existed as part of uh, the broader American culture. And um, if somebody insulted you, as Sumner was said to have insulted Preston Brooks's cousin uh, in 1856, then uh, you, in order to uphold the honor of your cousin and your your society, your region, South Carolina in this case, um, his uh, Preston Brooks' cousin was a senator from South Carolina, who whom uh, Sumner had uh, had sort of insulted in his anti-slavery speech. That, and Brooks himself was, uh, a re- was, a, was a rep, right? Was in the House? Am I remembering this right? Re- Preston Brooks was in the House, right, and okay. Sumner was in the Senate. Right, right. And Brooks came across uh, from the House uh, after the adjournment one day in May of 1856, and Sumner was sitting at his desk writing letters, and um, uh, senators, even senators didn't have offices in those days. Their, their Senate desk was their office. And uh, Brooks came up and started beating him over the head with a heavy cane, uh, with a um, you know a kind of uh, gold knob on it. And Sumner's legs were trapped under the desk, and he couldn't get up. In fact, he finally tore the desk loose from the floor trying to get up. He couldn't defend himself. In any case, uh, what, what Brooks thought he was doing was uh, avenging the insult and upholding the honor of his cousin. And that culture of honor uh, was uh, was uh, was crucial to the, politi- the political culture uh, of the 1850s. And in fact, um, in 1860, a, a number of um, um, congressmen and governors and political leaders in the South urged secession because they regarded the uh, election of Lincoln as uh, an insult to Southern honor uh, in 1860. The South needed to uphold its honor in the same way that Preston Brooks had upheld the honor of his cousin back in 1856. And that political culture, uh, and which is part of a broader social culture of the era of honor and dishonor, shame and cowardice and shame and dishonor, against um, honor and courage and, and um, uh, manhood, masculinity. Uh, that was, uh, uh, all of these concepts were central to the political culture of the time and had a lot to do uh, with the decision for secession and the decision for war in 1861. How, how much of that is disproportionately part of the culture of the South as opposed to the nation 
in general. And the re- one of the reasons I ask this is in, in, the, in the historical literature about slavery, there is a lot of, I, obviously you know this, you're, you're, you're the, the, one of the deans of, of this part of the historical profession, but just speaking to, to, our, to our listeners, there is a, a kind of an ongoing discussion of the ways that the violence and domination of slavery was one of the roots of what you're describing, a, a, a culture of honor and shame, the need to uh, resort to physical aggression to uphold one's honor. How, how much of that, how much of what we're describing is something that is largely, if not exclusively, something in the, in the South, or maybe it really is that that was the culture of the whole country? Well, it certainly was uh, central to Southern culture, but I don't think it was exclusive to the South. Uh, Slavery had a lot to do with it. The mastery of whites over blacks, of slave owners over slaves, of of, um, free over slave. The slave uh, was... um, he, he was uh, it, it, slavery was a was a source of, of shame and dishonor, um, and uh, so to be a slave was to be dishonored, and to be free and especially a slave owner was to uphold the honor uh, of your uh, race uh, and your culture, and so I think that reinforced uh, a, a kind of broader sense of honor. Um, it, it certainly strengthened and, and, and made this concept of, of uh, honor and dishonor stronger in the South than in the North. But it was not absent from the North. It was not uh, when Sumner was um, uh, was caned. There was a huge uh, backlash in the North uh, because um, uh, many. And it strengthened the Republican Party in the North because. Uh, all kinds of northern uh, political leaders said uh, the the South is trying to treat us uh, and our political leaders like Sumner like they're slaves. Uh, they they think they can um, uphold their own honor by dishonoring us. Uh, and so the, the kind of backlash, uh, the feedback in the North was a kind of a, a, a reassertion of northern honor. And the same thing was true in what was going on in Kansas in the clash between the free state settlers and the settlers from the, the southern slave states. Uh, and I think uh, part of the um, p- part of the northern political culture that fueled the rise of the Republican Party was a kind of uh, resistance to what they called the slave power. Uh, the domination of national politics by the southern states through their leverage and control of the Democratic Party is what they call the slave power. And uh, part of the reason for Lincoln's election in 1860 was northern resistance uh, to this slave power, which was a part of the political culture of honor in the north. So not only did you have slavery feeding uh, the, the domination of white over black, uh, um, based on um, the culture of honor among whites and the kind of ascribed, if not real, culture of shame ascribed by whites to blacks in the South, you also had uh, a certain um, a culture of, of honor of, of functioning in, in the North as well. Uh, and when the Southern states... Um, uh, went out and then asserted their right to uh, seize northern property, or national property, I should say, in the southern states like forts and uh, post offices and mints and so on, um, and then uh, used uh, violence, that is uh, armed force, to uh, try to, to seize Fort Sumter in April of 1861, the northern response was, here they are, they're trying to push us around again, and if they, if, if they can get away with that, that means we have been dishonored. And so the northern response was uh, basically to go to war. Now, you mentioned with, with the, the Republican Party, and, and as you said, the, 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 the Whig Party is disintegrating and the Republican Party is, is coming into existence over the course of this decade. When we, today, when we talk about 
anti-slavery, it it sort of seems obvious that that is means anti-white supremacy, anti-racism, so on and so forth. Whereas at the time, now there was a a part of the anti-slavery movement that was something that we would see today as anti-racist. A lot of it was explicitly racist and was actually wanted to keep not just slavery, but all black people out of whole, you know, the, the North and the territories. Walk us through that. How, how can, how can, how can that be the case? It doesn't square with our kind of modern notions of things. How can, how can anti-slavery also be anti-black people? Well, the, the um, anti-slavery uh, uh, culture was a broad spectrum uh, in the North, all the way from uh, the abolitionists, uh, both black and white abolitionists, black abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, a white abolitionist like William White Garrison, uh, on, on the egalitarian, anti-racist left, to use modern terminology, to, through the uh, Free Soilers, whose idea was um, uh, no more slave states, no more slave territories, uh, and no more domination of national politics by the slave power, uh, all the way through that, that's kind of the middle of the spectrum, to uh, what we might call conservative Republicans on the right of this spectrum, anti-slavery spectrum, uh, which uh, basically said uh, this should be a white man's country and we ought to get rid of, um, we don't want any blacks, free or slaves, settling in the territories. So you've got this broad spectrum of anti-slavery sentiment, and the abolitionists on the far left were egalitarians. Uh, they opposed both slavery and white supremacy, but uh, that was a rather small slice of Northern opinion. Uh, it was maybe growing a little bit um, in the 1850s, and it grew a lot more in the 1860s as a consequence of the war and the abolition of slavery and the um, the enlistment of, of uh, former slaves to fight on the side of the North, on the side of the Union during the war. So that by 1865, 1867, 1868, you've got a much uh, larger commitment to uh, equal rights on the part of the Republican Party, but back in the 1850s, uh, the 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 uh, middle, what we might call moderate Republicans, and the right of the anti-slavery spectrum, we call them conservative Republicans, uh, were far larger in in um, power and influence within the party than the more egalitarian left. Even the conservative Republicans were. Uh, less anti-black, if we want to put it that way, than were the Democrats in both North and South. So one of the things that interests me most about this period is you have the, the, the U.S. federal government has various structural components that are designed to litigate and absorb disagreements, tensions uh, of, of all sorts, and it broke down. It didn't. That didn't work. Uh, by definition, when you had a, when you had a civil war, and so I'm curious your sense of that. What is what is the what is the nature of the institutional failure? Were the were the were the substantive divisions just too great? Is it is it uh, well? Talk to me about that because that that I think is something we think about a lot today. We have. Um, we have the you know an updated version of the same constitution and it seems on a lot of fronts that those protections those 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 mechanisms that are designed to absorb big disagreements aren't entirely working and you have uh people sort of looking for total solutions um to litigate these different, can, can you walk? What what is what is the nature of the institutional breakdown that leads to the Civil War? Well, I think um, the Constitution, when it was formed, didn't anticipate the rise of political parties, um, and in fact, the founders uh, were very um, uh, suspicious of of what they called faction, uh, and uh, what eventually came to be called parties and partisanship. 
nevertheless, the political parties uh, emerged. Uh, they emerged very early in the 1790s, the Federalists and the uh, Republicans, uh, and they morphed into eventually the Whigs and, and the Democrats. Um, even though the Constitution had had uh, looked askance on the possibility of, of uh, parties and partisanship, the political parties that emerged by the 1820s managed to um, create a kind of institutional structure under the Constitution that did mitigate the potential of um, disruption by the slavery issue. The slavery issue was the one issue um, above all others. There were others that um, that also uh, caused uh, um, uh, caused a lot of controversy. The, the, the various economic issues, like the tariff and and um, government subsidies uh, to different kinds of economic uh, uh, enterprise and so on. But slavery eclipsed all of those, uh, even as early as the part uh, as the debate over the Missouri Compromise in 1820. But the political parties that emerged um, tried to manage to mitigate this. It created an institutional structure. Um, that kept the slavery issue under control, uh, mainly because, as I said, suggested a while ago, both the Whig and the Democratic parties uh, from the 1820s until the 1850s uh, had a, a strength in all sections of the country. Um, and when that broke down in the 1850s and the Whigs virtually disappeared from the South and the Republicans emerged as overwhelmingly dominant by the late 1850s in the North, uh, that that political party structure, um, which had emerged under the Constitution but had not been really foreseen by the creators of the Constitution, uh, when that broke down, that that's what I think uh, brought on uh, secession and war. It's really more this uh, informal uh party institutional structure rather than the constitution per se that was the that was keeping the 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 united states going politically for for this period and it's really that so it's 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 really the it's really the breakdown of the party system and not just the party system but the way that the party system partly intentionally had been designed to contain this one very explosive issue, i.e., slavery. So it's not really about the Constitution so much itself. I think that's right. Yeah. Just to finish up with having having gone through this history, uh, what do you do? You see parallels. I mean, there's the the thing that jumps out to me is that the the lack of a geographical breakdown. Um, makes the idea of a of a of anything like what happened in the 1860s a little hard to figure. You kind of have this, you know, kind of weird, uh, you know, patchwork of 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 red and blue states, and even within those states, it's largely kind of cities and 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 hinterlands. Um, what parallels do you see? Are there any? Is it is that overstated? Are there things that we can learn from that period about? What we're dealing with today? Well, uh, I think there are two two uh, two differences. One is that there is no such um, single overriding issue as slavery uh, at the root of political conflict today. Uh, some people might mention abortion. Uh, as a comparable issue, but I don't think abortion carries anything like the sense of uh, of a, a threat to the future survival of a social of a complete social system uh, in the same way that uh, Southerners felt about the threat to slavery in the 1850s. Um, so that's one big difference between today and and the 1850s. Uh, the other is that while there is a kind of geographical breakdown between uh, 
what we would call blue states and red states today, it is not nearly as uh, polarized as it was in the 1850s. Uh, while you've got uh, a number of states that are consistently red and another group of states that are consistently blue, and uh, there's a kind of at least a vague resemblance to the geographical breakdown between blue and red states and <laughs> today and the, the uh, blue and red states of, of the of 1860, except that the parties have switched. Uh, uh, the Democratic and the Republican parties have kind of switched at least their um, their names, if if not their well, they switched their substance in many respects as well. But uh, that polarization is not as uh, sharp as it was, uh, even even though, let's say, Alabama and uh, Mississippi and uh, Arkansas are consistently red states today, um, there is a substantial um, uh, Democratic Party in each of those states. Uh, and we saw that in, in the recent uh, election in Mississippi, of course, and in Texas. Uh, we saw it in the election of Doug Jones to the Senate in Alabama. Such a uh, such a, uh, contested uh, elections in southern states, let's say in 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 1856 or 1860, would have been impossible. Uh, but they are possible today. Uh, so while there is uh, there is definite political polarization in the country today, and there are issues like abortion. Uh, that uh, arouse passions, uh, in both cases, uh, these are not as extreme as they were in the 1850s. I, I got an email about a week ago from a journalist in Canada uh, who wanted to uh, wanted to talk to me about uh, whether I thought a civil war was possible in the United States today. Well, I, I, personally, I think you know, a question like that reflects uh, naivete or ignorance about the nature of American politics. While it is polarized today, no question about that, it's been polarized just as badly or far worse uh, at, at different times in the past, let's say in the 1930s, uh, between uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, or in the 1890s, uh, between the populist and the populist-dominated uh, Democratic Party of 1896 and the Republican Party of McKinley. There have been and of course, far worse in, in 1860. There have been a number of times in the past when the American uh, politics and American society has been sharply um, polarized, but we've managed to get through those without a civil war in every case except one. And uh, the, the, the reason we did not get through it in that case, I think, is for the unique polarization of the 1850s over an issue that had come to a head. Uh, the issue of slavery had uh, had carried the potential uh, for um, uh, disruption as early as the Constitutional Convention in 1787, but they managed to compromise it then, and they managed to compromise it again in 1820, and so on, and, and various times in the 1840s, and, and as late as 1850. But it came to a head in the 1850s in a way that I don't think any of the polarizing issues of our time or even in the 1890s or 1930s uh, came to a head. Uh, so I don't think we're heading for a civil war today. It also seems to me in the, that, that so you, you, as you say, you have this issue of slavery that is so big, so deeply rooted in the South, creates in many ways a, a fundamentally different social system, at least in the Deep South, relative to the North. So just the bigness and centrality of slavery. But it also seems to me the fact that you've got the clear geographical breakdown, like there's a border, right? I mean, there's a kind of a line. And that, yep. um, and, and one, one of the things that has always struck me about the American Civil War is that it, unlike um, many other civil wars where there is a, a breakdown of public order and, uh, you know, emergence of paramilitaries and stuff like that, obviously the North 
disagreed that these things were happening as a legal matter. But the southern states all seceded as states. They did it through the through the constitutional structures of their states as they understood them. And the lack of that um, geographical breakdown that, you know, lines up that you can just say, all right, we're on this side and you're on that side, also seems, if not fundamental, just a huge, huge part of it. Um, it's it's. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just put that out there. But I and I guess, but I guess that's sort of in the nature of, in the nature of slavery itself and how it developed and its 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 rootedness in in the commodity cultures of the South and so forth. That's 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 true, um, and uh, I, there is the geographical division that's so obvious. Uh, there were free states, and then there were slave states, and uh, and they were in different parts of the country. So that when the war came, it was like a war between two different countries. Right, right. And you just don't have that today. Right, right. Uh, Jim McPherson, thank you so much. I I have really enjoyed this. I have no doubt our listeners will as well. Uh, It's I think about this period a lot. the, The 1850s, the nature of that of that institutional breakdown, the sort of the unpolitically litigatable nature of the of the slavery question uh i think you've brought out but both brought it alive for our listeners and also given us a sense of the even though there are parallels the the deep differences so let's uh i guess when you were saying before we've had um the 1860s the 1890s and the 1830s so we're we're uh we're batting 600 in non-state breakdown i guess we'd say so let's we can hope we keep up we keep up that average thank you so much for joining us i really appreciate it well thank you i've enjoyed our conversation too i hope you enjoy that i found it fascinating um i don't know how how much that came through in in my voice and my in my questions you know you, you seldom get to speak with someone who has that much knowledge who has been thinking about these core questions for decades and really getting the benefit of their wisdom. There was one point he spoke about a book by Joanne Freeman. The title is The Field of Blood, Joanne B. Freeman. It's from Macmillan. And you can obviously find that in uh, many local bookstores, certainly online at Amazon and so forth. So uh, definitely a book worth looking up. Uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. A uh, lot of news coming up this week, so we'll probably be back with at least one more episode uh, sometime during the week uh, as news warrants. See you then, Josh. Later. Later.